I'm really excited for a new culture around wellness, around this acknowledgement that we all are imperfect beings doing the best that we can and empowering ourselves to do the work to try to be the change. John Downs is one of the most badass people I know. During the Fit for Service Summit in Austin, we both took part in the Elemental Games where five teams competed in a series of physical and mental challenges with the goal to create a healthy relationship within ourselves around competition. I witnessed John hold 10 pound weights with his arms stretched out for minutes on end while doing the breath of fire and a tiebreaker that would decide the fate of the final two teams left standing. I also saw John go out of his way to sit with me in the sand when I faced my resistance to Divine Brotherhood during a sunrise men's circle in Costa Rica. John is a warrior with the gentlest of hearts. In this episode, we chat about his recent experience co-facilitating a men's retreat, we explore the power of ceremony, and we dive into his wealth of knowledge in the psychedelic space. I generally start the podcast as soon as I connect with my guest on Zoom, but this time, John and I got carried away catching up and talking about Harry Potter, among other things. I've left that part out, but as a result, the podcast has a little bit of a jump at the beginning, which you'll have to forgive me for. Having said that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Robert Downs. So tell me about your men's retreat experience. I'd love to start here and hear more about it. Yeah, it was uh, quite a powerful weekend, really. And I guess the place to start is it was hosted by uh, coach Jamie Walrab, who is an old friend and the man that I did my first men's program with back in October of 2020. I began men's work, had never really um, spent any time in a community of men and found very quickly how enriching that experience could be. And so having gone through a seven-month program with uh, Jamie leading me and, and 12 other men, uh, you know, stayed in, in touch and have continued to do uh, a lot of men's work. And so he asked me to assist and come and hold space for the men and really just, you know, help facilitate if somebody, similar to how I am doing in the plant medicine space, holding space for men, if, you know, someone had a difficult experience or had to be kind of helped away from the group. And then also just you know, being there, uh, as a, um, as a rock. So what was it? It was uh, an experience where, you know, 12 men showed up, uh, absolutely vulnerable, really exposed themselves, allowed themselves to be seen and to see there were a combination of embodiment practices where we would, um, go through exercises of really, uh, having an opportunity to, dig into past feelings, emotions, traumas, things that we might be carrying around that historically our society, our culture doesn't allow us to express as men. So a lot of the exercises are just sharing, um, going through, you know, the wins, the losses, the highs, the lows, some are more directed towards, okay, let's talk about a wound that you're carrying or a feeling that you don't want to feel. That was actually the first question of the entire weekend. What is a feeling that you won't allow yourself to feel? 
And, you know, that kind of was woven through the entire weekend, uh, through all the exercises, ultimately culminating in a sacred theater where at the very end of the workshop, uh, at the two days retreat, there was actually three days, there was a moment where we had to perform some art, some sacred art. So we had interpretive dance. We had a guy do a strip tease. His word was wild. He, you know, became a father very young, wouldn't allow himself to ever be wild, was very responsible for his family. And so to see him, you know, click on Paradise City by Guns N' Roses and do just the silliest of strip teases, you know, these are things that on paper or certainly even in the telling of the story afterwards, it's like, okay, that's kind of silly. It's fun. But you know, in a sacred container over the course of 36 hours where you have a chance to really be vulnerable, it's such a good exercise. And these are muscles that we as men don't have an opportunity to flex very often. And so um, dipping into that space with the camaraderie and the support that we historically, you know, from time immemorial have enjoyed, but in our most recent iteration of our, our culture, you know, really have gotten away from with the isolation, the lack of, you know, community bonds. It was nice to dive in and support uh, men going through experience of opening and in many instances, releasing emotions, feelings, traumas that they've been carrying around. So in between uh, the um, embodiment exercises, there was also, you know, a lot of addressing of uh, I mean, one of my favorite exercises that we did, one of the favorite practices, I should say, um, Jamie masterfully orchestrated a ceremony where uh, the men would dip their fingers in clay and touch themselves and mark themselves with clay where their father had hurt them or where they had felt disappointed or where they had been um, emotionally or physically injured. And so they would do this to another man who was witnessing them as the father. Uh, and to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware, maybe it's like, okay, this kind of is, wow, holy cow, it's so heavy. And uh, you don't realize the impact, uh, the negative impact in many instances of, of the emotions that we carry around with us um, for, for our entire lives. And so to have an opportunity to really ceremonialize and release that type of heavy emotion and to be witnessed by another man who sees you and feels you, you know, truly, you know, carries many of the same uh, archetype, archetypical wounds. It's, um, it's a really beautiful thing. It was a really yeah. beautiful thing. So, I mean, you, you know, I could, I could talk about it for the entire hour, but it was really a beautiful weekend yeah. and uh, you know, feel like I came out with uh, 12 new brothers. Wow. That's so, such a simple exercise yet so powerful like when we acknowledge those wounds you know that's when they have less of a grip or a hold on us and that's really you know what, what what's needed for all of us yeah and it's like, you don't have you don't give yourself an opportunity to feel yeah. those feelings and you know the first is to look at the wounds and to acknowledge them and then in that process you feel those feelings and that ultimately is the most effective way to move through is to feel yeah. I, I was also curious, what does, because the, the words holding space come around quite often, what would be your definition of holding space? Like, what's the mindset that you go into these ceremonies, which you do, you're doing more and more often? Mm, yeah. Well, I want to give the participants 
of the space that I'm holding, whether it's a ceremony or workshop. I mean, we, it always comes down to, and I look at it as a sacred space, a ceremonial space. The first word that comes to mind is safety. Want to engender a feeling of, I am safe. Uh, I am not alone. I am supported in the work that I am doing. And that, um, so that's first and foremost, what it's all about is just, you know, feeling of safety and support. Then it's being seen, you know, people want to feel in that space that someone is there witnessing uh, their, their work, their journey. It adds a certain gravity and, and validity to be in a sacred space that's held as a group, you know, and so holding as a group is, brings a special energy as well. And that's, those are the most important factors, you know, feeling safe, um, feeling seen and feeling supported in what can sometimes be very heavy uh, work that folks are undertaking in the ceremonial space. Mm -hmm. As you know, I uh, held space for the first time a few weeks ago, we chatted about this uh, for someone I know who wanted to do his first psilocybin uh, experience and the the one lesson that I got from it is really to put the other person's experience ahead of mine. And at times I would get caught up in what I wanted to get out of it or what my expectation was of how the ceremony was going to go. And I kept having to remind myself that I was there for the other person and not for myself. That's a really important point as to, and I, and I think about it often as a guide and a facilitator to let the experience unfold naturally and not to try to shape or direct the experience, which we can do even with just a subtle touch or a word, we can really push someone or pull someone into a different direction than their experience might otherwise go. And I think that we all have an innate intelligence in our subconscious that, uh, works with us and with our conscious mind to allow these experiences to unfold exactly as they should, even if that experience turns out to be what we would call a difficult one. And so I've said this before, but it's, it's worth saying again, there's no such thing as a bad trip. It's only a difficult journey. And those difficult journeys, uh, studies show, can be the most impactful, the most powerful. And allowing someone to have the space to have a difficult journey without needing to jump in and save them or comfort them. Uh, those are your judgments that are interfering. Now, of course, you know, safety is paramount and we don't want to, you know, see someone needlessly, you know, suffer if we can ease that suffering, but there is a, an element of, acceptance and allowance of an experience to unfold without shaping it and bringing in our own need to be a guru or, or a messiah or save this person from this experience like they're getting the journey that they need yeah there's this quote always. there's this quote going around these days uh in our circles which says something to the effect of um if you go see a healer who says they're going to heal you, that that's not the right person. Like a good healer is yeah. someone who's going to help you heal yourself. And for sure that, that applies here. And it also applies to experiences outside of psychedelics, just like real life, you know, when something quote unquote bad happens, 
you know, there's usually a lesson in it that will appear down the line. It's just hard to see in the exact moment. And we might start suffering because of it. Uh, by suffering, I mean, just, you know, in our mind going over it and wishing for things to not be that way. But days, weeks, months, years later, you might see that there was a lesson in it. Yeah. And sometimes it does take time. It really does. And yeah. your point is well made. The healing, you know, doesn't occur sitting across from a healer necessarily. It, it occurs in those moments after the ceremony when we're integrating what we faced in that space and we're having the courage to face those feelings and emotions and memories, positive or negative. Uh, Nicole, my partner, who you know well, and then, you know, we've, um, we, we hold space with sound and, you know, there's uh, sound meditation. There's some folks that'll say, well, you know, you want to come to our sound healing or, you know, are you guys holding a sound healing? And it's, we, we always shy away from calling them sound healings, which somehow implies that the sound is healing you. You're healing yourself ultimately with the, the help of the sound, which creates space, but the, um, and the sound is a, is a fantastic guide as well, you know, for helping uh, people stay out of thought loops and, you know, really the nonlinear aspect of the, the notes that, that we're playing really allow people to bounce around different, um, different parts of their psyche. Right. Yeah. But you know, that they're doing the work They're you know, with the space being held, it's the magic happens within. Yeah. Nobody knows you better than you know yourself. So it only makes sense that you would be the one who needs to do the work to, to heal yourself. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, we know ourselves so well, sometimes it's nice to bring uh, that medicine into the space so that we are able to view ourselves, our, actions, our habits, our, our habitual thoughts through a little bit of a, a different tint on the lens. Yeah. And that sometimes can really help create space for transformative change when the work is done. Yeah. I mean, they're all just tools to kind of reconnect us with ourselves. You know, if, if, if you have trouble knowing yourself, maybe there's a, a disconnect somewhere and there's, there are tools that can help us just dive a little deeper and help recreate those connection points. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so from uh, one experience <laughs> to one that maybe is a little bit more intense to, to use <laughs> one word, how was uh, your Bufo ceremony? Uh, was that a, a couple months ago, I think? It was beautiful. Um, very clear message to be with what is uh, from that liminal space you know, went straight in, really just shot like a rocket into that space. I think there's a couple of different techniques I understand for administering Bufo. One is to really take gradual increases in the medicine. And, you know, the other is to just, um, you know, strap yourself to the rocket. And my practitioner, you know, made the case that strapping myself to the rocket was the uh, best way to proceed. Uh, in that first uh, ceremony. And it was beautiful. It was exactly what I needed it to be. And, you know, as important as the ceremony was the integration time that I allotted myself afterwards, where I was able to go yeah. to Joshua Tree, sit in a off the grid cabin, one bedroom, one room cabin for uh, a handful of days, four days, and really just soak in 
that solitude uh, and and allow what was a very clear message to percolate and you know more continued to come to me uh, after the ceremony because I al- allowed that space didn't just jump right back into the default world. Yeah, I think I rescued by a ranger. I heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was part of it. That was part of it for sure. Um, yeah, I, I looked at that in hindsight, really actually even as it was happening as, as a continuation of the ceremony, I understood that, you know, it was happening for me, not to me. And, uh, you know, it was calm, if not, albeit a little frustrated with my uh, inability to, to find the truck. <laughs> um, for those who don't know what Bufo is, uh, do you want to give a, a quick synopsis? Yeah, it's 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, a secretion of the Bufo alvaris toad, pardon my pronunciation perhaps. And uh, yeah, so the um, the 5-MeO-DMT, you know, is um, it taking, taken in the right context and the right dosage, you know, will, you know, really allow for a dissolution of consciousness and uh, access to a liminal space where, you know, there is uh, an opportunity to, you know, be disconnected from those same, as I said, habitual thoughts and patterns that we run ourselves through. And in that space, uh, there is sometimes wisdom imparted from beyond to us, which we then are responsible for carrying forth into our lives and making sense of. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a not necessarily, not, a, I guess, technically a plant medicine as much as an animal medicine, but uh, one that's been used in uh, indigenous cultures for some time. That's gained a lot of popularity here in the last uh, couple of decades in the West. And the, the trip part with that one is, is pretty short. You know, it's just a few minutes long and within like 45 minutes, your system has metabolized the, the DMT. So uh, it's not a, a long experience compared to some other psychedelics. No, it's not. Um, it was very quick. It was very interesting to be told to eat a cheeseburger afterwards, that it was very ground, would be very grounding for me. And it was, it was the best cheeseburger I think I've ever had um, after, you know, after fasting uh, all morning for it. So yeah, very brief, um, you know, very clear. You know, I, I've struggled since my first plant medicine ceremony with um, just this understanding of, I have a very active critic in my mind. Mm -hmm. And this self-criticism and judgment has been so pervasive for as long as I can remember that when I sat with ayahuasca for the very first time in 2015, it was a shock to me that I was able to see like, oh, that voice, that critical coach-like voice telling me that I'm not enough, that's not me. That's that's just a a projection. That's a voice. That's something in my mind. But I, I actually, I feel myself really deeply beyond and behind that voice. And, and I feel like love and joy. And so if that's me, who is this voice? And I felt that uh, lesson, if you will, the same lesson that I felt uh, in 2015 in that ayahuasca journey in, with Bufo in that as I was reclaiming my consciousness, coming back, drifting back from the other dimension that I was in with the DMT to, to this world that we live in. Now I, I can hear like a car horn beeping in the distance and 
you know, it's instantly my first, am I doing this right? Am I having, you know, some big breakthrough? Like what's, what's happening here? You know, what am I, am I thinking the right thing? Am I breathing? And then it was just like a instant knowledge, like, well, just be with what is and, you know, see this voice, this criticism for what it is. It's just a, a pattern of behavior of habitual thought. It's not me. Uh, I'm somewhere beyond that. And I was able to, you know, really just kind of drop back into a meditative space where I was just, um, you know, the mirror reflecting consciousness. And that was the powerful moment in the experience. And I, it's funny, you know, sometimes we just go back to basics. I've, I've had a few journeys uh, where something similar happens, where I just get really caught up in that identification with that critical voice. And I think many people in their day-to-day -day lives, they run that critical voice, uh, you know, day in and day out without ever really creating any opportunity for separation, you know, and it doesn't have to be in the plant medicine space. It can be just in a mindfulness or Vipassana meditation. It can be in a yoga class. Um, it can be in a walk in nature, really just creating the conditions for, um, for well, a higher, higher level of consciousness, you know, separation from that incessant chatter, just noticing what is without attaching to it. For whatever reason in my, you know, I have to sometimes seem to go into that space to really have it click. Um, and so that just, you know, maybe speaks to the conditioning and the patterning in my, in my mind, it's certainly very, um, very strong, but uh, I was grateful for it. It was a beautiful ceremony, beautiful practitioner, and, uh, you know, still integrating the lessons today. Yeah. That photo of you just lying there with the view at your feet was, you know, I just kind of said it all. It was unbelievable. I hope you have a, a good version of it and maybe even frame it, you know, just to remember what that moment felt like. I think as a photographer, I believe in the power of, of mm. images, especially when they're printed and hanging on our walls. And, um, you know, it can be a powerful tool just to serve as a reminder for that state that you experienced and the lesson that you, that you got from it. I really appreciate that. I have a vision board right here um, next to my, on my wall um, that I'm looking at right now. And I think it would make a great picture there. I do have something to remind me of that journey. I've seen uh, Hawk in different meditations a number of times over the last couple of years. And right before I went down, uh, right before they administered the Bufo, I saw a Hawk flying uh, right outside the window. And so I went into this, I commenced the ceremony. And as I was laying there, uh, my practitioner saw the hawk as well. So she walked over to the deck of tarot cards and pulled a hawk card, wow. coincidentally. Yeah. And so um, she told me about this afterwards. And I told her, yes, I saw the hawk. And so it just so happened about two weeks later, three weeks later, I had a, ta a, a tattoo um, already scheduled with a really brilliant artist. And, uh, and I have the hawk on my arm amongst uh, other uh, others, you know, symbols and such. And uh, so I see the hawk and I, it reminds me of that space and, yeah. you know, really having the vision and clarity to see um, that which, um, you know, is, is difficult to see. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so discernment is one of the, the characteristics of that uh, animal. And so, um, yeah, so I, I have it right here on my uh, right arm. Yeah, that's awesome. I love those little synchronicities in life. And that that's obviously a big one. But 
for me, the I have this recurring dream where I'm in a man-made jungle, almost kind of like a zoo, and I'm running to hide from a lion that I know is there to to find me. You know, you have a dream one time and you're like, well, that was a weird dream. But then you have the dream a second and a third time. And you're like, well, okay, this, this dream is, is after me. And I had one last night. And then this morning on Instagram, this uh, sound practitioner, funny that we we're talking about that as well, uh, who we follow because he's local here, his, um, his poster for this evening's sound meditation was... Uh, come across the lion in your path mm. and you know I, if, there's nothing for me to do or to act upon but just like the synchronicity of like this dream that i had last night and then seeing this poster today for the sound meditation that i was planning on going to we're not finally but i'm almost regretting it because of that poster i'm so curious i want to go meet that lion and I also told Davina, I'm like, next time I have this dream, I really need to stop hiding from the lion and go to it and see what it wants for me, uh, which easier said than done in dreams. But uh, it's funny, the moment I set that intention, that poster came into my life. So I just have a deep appreciation for these little synchronicities in life, just like you with the, with the hawk and that card and all of it. It makes life so much more fun. Yeah, it really does, you know, and you see... Um sometimes we see what we need to see, right? In our, in our dreams and our visions, I think about you stepping into this role in your divine masculine, you know, the lion representing the king uh, of the jungle. It's, um, that's, you know, powerful imagery. And, you know, we can make of it what we wish, but uh, I cannot wait to hear the story of you <laughs> confronting yeah. this lion. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. It's unfolding. Yeah, um, please do. Yeah, I'm also sitting with Bufo in two and a half weeks uh, for the first time. And I'm like the most nervous slash the most excited I can possibly be. I, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but at times, like my heart just like, starts pounding. And I know it's my ego wanting to have nothing to do with it. It's like, please don't take me there. But I, I trust that it's going to be a, a good experience. Yeah, it will. It will be. It'll be exactly the experience you need. Yep. Uh, so from one psychedelic to another, cannabis is something that, you know, we, we've had in common. Um, and you obviously were a big part of that industry in the United States as it uh, became legalized. Um, what, I, I'm curious to know, what was consuming cannabis like for you? Um, I can maybe share first what, it, what, what it's like for me, because... I've been trying to witness more and more what it's like, and I really enjoy it, for lack of a better word, and not for, you know, watching TV and eating chips, although that part is enjoyable too sometimes, but I just feel like it tunes me into a special frequency, which allows me to be so much more present with this world that we live in, whereas my natural state is maybe a little bit slower and more quiet. I realized this could be excuses, uh, but it just works so well for me. And I, sometimes like I could be on cannabis 24 seven and I might be okay with it just because I love interacting with the world so much on it. It's almost like the real world becomes more real. And right now I'm going through uh, two and a half month 
detox uh, in preparation for ayahuasca. So I stopped smoking and consuming any cannabis at the moment. And I'm, I'm witnessing just how differently things feel. It's not a good or bad, it's, it's just different. Uh, but I love hearing uh, what consuming cannabis is like for others. And I know you stopped. Well, I stopped a year ago. And so uh, December 21st, 2021, uh, I, I quit. And what year is this? 2022? 2020, excuse me. <laughs> so two years um, are the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It feels all that it does run together. I I identify like you, it sounds like, with the John Stewart character in Half Baked, where he's like, You ever been to the movies? You ever been to the movies on weed, man? You know, everything's a little bit better on cannabis. Um, I discovered. Um, when I smoked for the first time, I was 21 years old. I was really anti-drug, grew up, you know, dare to keep kids off drugs, just did not want to have anything to do with cannabis whatsoever, uh, because I was participating in team sports primarily and and just it was gonna get me off track and, you know, make me a stoner. And I did it the first time. And my first thought was, wow, this is amazing. I'm laughing my ass off. I'm so free and giggling with my friends. And the second thought was they're lying to me. What else are they lying to me about? Because this is not, you know, evil as uh, I was told. And for the better part of 20 years was a daily consumer of cannabis and found that it, I believe I was self-medicating for mild depression, uh, that there was, um, you know, a lot of comfort provided by cannabis that helped me open up my, my mind and look beyond the small town in Missouri that I grew up in and played no small part in me moving to California and just living the life that I've lived, you know, since it's just become part of my personality after 20 years. Uh, and for many of the same reasons, I should say, you know, just really enjoy engaging with the world with a little bit of cannabis. But after 20 years, I noticed that my likelihood of anxiety when consuming cannabis was increased. And mm -hmm. as someone who, you know, again, worked in the cannabis industry, identified as a, a cannabis executive investor operator, you know, really helping to end prohibition and, you know, believe wholeheartedly in a legal industry for me to, and, and wanting to represent that, you know, someone can be a cannabis consumer and still be a responsible, upstanding member of society. For me to feel anxiety when I consumed cannabis, it was almost a little bit of denial at first, like, uh, you know, not me, like, I, this is, this is my stuff. But I think it coincided with my work with psychedelics and really starting to dive deeper into my psyche. And I think that, you know, whether it was whatever plant medicines were conspiring within me and, you know, it was, it was clear that I had to put cannabis down for a little while for my own journey. And so I did, I stopped smoking cannabis. I stopped consuming alcohol completely for over 12 months uh, in the last few weeks. I have um, actually since the first I, I've, consume some cannabis. I, I've enjoyed it uh, tremendously. But I think the key is the mindfulness that we bring yeah. to it. Uh, my primary use case for consuming cannabis is I'm going to take one little puff and go to the gym. And it's going to aid me in my ability to connect to my body. Uh, it, there is a real pain relief factor. I, I've got degenerative disc uh, disease. And so I need discs replaced in my lower back, you know, just like the team 
team sports, football, it's like, I'm, I hurt, you know, I've got multiple surgeries and, you know, cannabis helps. It does ease my pain. And so there's that little element as well. But I think, um, you know, what I've discovered is it's, it's a healthy relationship when done in moderation and right mindset. Um, but eating chips, sitting on the couch, you know, is not the, the best, you know, highest and best use for cannabis. I, I really believe that. I think it's a very misused um, plant medicine. I think that it has way more healing potential than what we let on uh, in our society where it's almost been, um, you know, treated the same as alcohol, right? Yeah. As it's a vice and, and, you know, we use it in that mindset oftentimes. And so we miss the very subtle, but also very real and tangible benefits that um, that cannabis can bring into our lives. You know, the mindfulness uh, being paramount, I think, uh, you know, being in a, a, a very heart open space, you know, having some of the benefits of psychedelics without the actual psychedelic effect, you know, yeah. and what I mean by that is just simply the ability to look at our own self-referential processing, mm -hmm. to see ourselves a little bit differently, and then to, you know, have the space to ask, you know, is this what I want? Is this who I am? And then to introduce, you know, in some instances changes or in some instances, just acceptance, you know, of, of who we are. And so I think, you know, cannabis is a beautiful plant and um, one who my relationship with is, you know, ever evolving. Yeah. One of my favorite uses is in the evening with Davina, we'll smoke a little bit. And just go into like these very deep, honest conversations with each other. And the cannabis just really allows us to lift those filters off, you know, so much faster than without it. And for sure, there's something to be said about being able to do the same thing without the use of cannabis or other tools. But at the same time, I feel like we've gone so much out of it because of how deep we've been able to go in such a short amount of time, you know, in a couple hour conversation, we'll discuss so much with the aid of cannabis. Um, I feel like it's, there's, um, it's missing from like the ceremonial space, cannabis, it, it, like you said, it, it is in the same category as alcohol, at least for the, for the, the most part. And people consume it more recreationally instead of ceremoniously. And I have yet to see many ceremonies done with cannabis as the primary tool. And do you feel like that's something that could be brought more into, into this world or? Are there Absolutely. Yeah. And here in California where cannabis is legal, Nicole and I are looking at um, having ceremonies where we administer cannabis with sound mm -hmm. and you know, the, the, so I think it's, it's super impactful. And what, what happens oftentimes when I have seen it used in the, in the ceremonial space is you're working with folks that don't consume cannabis that often. Now, I mean, you get normal day-to-day -day, uh, tokers and it's nothing to, to take some cannabis and, right. you know, to sit in a sound bath or any type of ceremony. It's the anxiety around, oh, I don't usually consume cannabis. It gives me anxiety. Those folks you know, really um, can benefit the most because what they'll have to do is face their anxiety and feel their feelings. And so cannabis becomes a vehicle for heightening that, um, that emotional perception of, of, especially of the anxiety that is self-generated around the plant, 
And so in a safe space where they are held and, you know, have the other tools of ceremony and ritual present, tremendous impact from cannabis and from facing that anxiety. And I have seen people that say to themselves, like, I am not a cannabis user. Cannabis does not agree with me redefine their relationship with cannabis because they use it in a ceremonial context and they face down those fears around their work with the plant. And then ultimately on a deeper level, whatever emotional fears they're bringing in to the space. And so I, I, I'm a big believer in ceremonial cannabis use. I think that there is a huge opportunity for um, creating ceremony around that. Yeah, I agree that in my experience and conversation about cannabis, that's what I hear the most often as well is uh, I used it in high school or I went to a rave and, you know, I had a bad trip and I got all anxious, but for sure, it's completely different when you use it in a, in a more sacred setting. hundred percent. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's like, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, what change do you hope psychedelics can bring to this world from a super high level? I'm really excited for a new culture around wellness, around this acknowledgement that we all are imperfect beings doing the best that we can and empowering ourselves to do the work to try to be the change, mm. um, just to throw like every cliche I can out there, right? So, yeah. but it, it, it's, but they work for a reason. Um, you know, we really, we see a world that's increasingly disconnected um, communities are fragmented. People feel more and more alone. And in my experience, psychedelics connect us not only with each other, but also with our true essence, mm-hmm. ourselves. And so oftentimes psychedelics aren't adding on, you know, new beliefs, new habits, new thoughts, right? They're, they're ripping away. They're taking away and we're shedding layers of our personality that are entrainment and cultural conditioning. And we're coming back to our true essence, which oftentimes, you know, takes the form of love and acceptance and compassion and empathy. And these are things that the world needs more of. And yeah. so that is what I, you know, see for psychedelics is that creating a world with more love, more compassion and higher levels of consciousness and less suffering. Mm. Obviously it's something that I am, you know, passionate about as well, but as someone who's really in the business of psychedelics, do you feel like it's becoming more and more widely accepted to the same extent that I perceive it to be, but I'm mostly a consumer, not a facilitator or expert in the industry. So I feel like it finds me because I'm looking for it as well. But as someone who's really deeper in that space, do you feel like there is hope and that it is indeed becoming that much more accessible? Yeah, absolutely. There's tremendous progress being made right now with decriminalization. We have a number of cities around the U.S. that have already decriminalized. We have movement in California for the decriminalization of psychedelics in 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, Seems like a better than 50% chance that that bill is going to pass to decriminalize psychedelics. And so if you look at the 
legalization front, there's tremendous progress. And then you look at the scientific front, you know, we're digging up old research that was done back in the 50s and 60s before the war on drugs. And then we're also adding to that body of research with new studies, new clinical studies and research that are showing tremendous promise for PTSD, for depression, for anxiety, there, uh, and a number of other conditions of addiction. So yeah, I'm anecdotally seeing a ton of interest from folks that are saying, hey, something is going on here mm -hmm. in this world that just doesn't sit right. And you know, I'm looking for tools to help to make sense of what I see happening in, in this world. And I'm also looking for tools for connection, both to connect, help connect me with myself and to my deeper levels of being, as well as with other mindful individuals that are on a conscious path that I can be with uh, in a world that seems like it's otherwise, to some extent or another, losing its mind. Have you seen Nine Perfect Strangers? I have to ask. <laughs> Everyone asks, and I have not. I have. I've been told that it's yeah. that's like um, you know I should see it because of the the you know the subject matter, and others right. are like it's basically like if you just wanted to dramatize yeah. and uh, make it absurd, uh, you know, and mischaracterize <laughs> the work yeah. that we do. That 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 would be the show to 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 watch. There's definitely like a Hollywood element to it, but the overall message is definitely well placed in there, and I think you'll appreciate it. And it is entertaining to watch until the very end. I'll leave it at that. And I recommend watching it. <laughs> it's on the list. Yeah. Um, how can people start making incremental changes? And I know microdosing is obviously a, a big part of it. It has been a, a huge part of my life since you introduced me to it, to it about a year ago. And the, one of the best ways that I've heard someone explain it is microdosing will just give you a little 1% increments every day. So you don't really notice much of a change on a daily basis. But then after a few weeks or months, you look back and you really see that cumulative effect. And for me, it has really just like shifted my awareness of my emotions. And some days it doesn't do all that much. And other days it will just unblock a fury of emotions or thoughts that I've been clinging to. Uh, microdosing is a powerful tool. Um, and it's just, it's just a tool for doing the work of bringing greater awareness to different elements of our lives. And, and, you know, when we want to make transformative change, oftentimes what we're, we're doing is not just adding in new habits, but we're stripping away those that don't serve us. And so microdosing, you know, the way that psychedelics interact with our minds, slowing activity in the prefrontal cortex, allowing uh, space for new thoughts to occur that in, in time with practice can become, you know, new habits and can become sustainable transformation. So what I would say is if psychedelics are a tool, they're just a hammer they're not the entire toolbox. We mm -hmm. need a tape measure to build a house. We need a saw. We need all the tools uh, in order to build a house. And, uh, and you do need a hammer and psychedelics, you know, are a very handy tool, but they're not going to do the work for you. And so the practices that I believe are most important for making sustainable transformation are all geared towards bringing greater awareness to 
our thoughts uh, and our behaviors. The Morning Pages by Julia Cameron, she talks about in The Artist's Way, um, The Artist's Way, which is a, an amazing book that if anyone hasn't out there that hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. It's really ostensibly about being unblocked as a creative, but we're all creatives in some way, shape or form. We don't have to be an actor or a writer in order to consider ourselves creative, especially in this world where it feels like all the tools for creation are right at our fingertips. So I typically start, whether I'm microdosing that particular day or whether it's a non-microdosing day, uh, I will start my day with three pages of free writing by hand in a, in a journal where I'm just writing my thoughts out, just really trying to write without judgment, without criticism, without attachment. And that can be a very liberating exercise. Um, and it's also, you know, writing is a complex form of thinking. And so as you begin to write your thoughts and you actually see them live on the page, you start to notice patterns and things, you know, it was so many times I wrote like, I'm, you know, about a certain aspect of my life that I wanted to see changed. And finally, you just get so sick of writing about it. You know, these are the thoughts and you're just like, okay, I, you know, you develop the, um, you really develop the, the, the fortitude to, to start to incorporate a change. So creative writing. The other thing is just to bring a mindfulness practice, meditation into your life. It's so important to make space for meditation. And in particular, just the meditation of noticing your feelings and your thoughts, the feelings in your legs as you're sitting in your chair, the sound in the background as you are just really wanting to sit in presence the oh wait what am i thinking about my laundry list okay mm -hmm. i just noticed that let's just release that so beginning to notice your thoughts through a meditation practice you know the real magic happens when you're right in the middle of a conversation and you notice that you're about to say something shitty and you can stop yourself because you've become more adept at noticing your thoughts. And mm. so meditation is another practice that I would highly recommend. I mean, that's really should be paramount, fundamental is to begin a meditation practice, even as someone who's done yogi for yoga for 15 years. Now, I thought I was a good meditator because I was, oh, it's always a moving meditation. You know, I'm, yeah, yeah take the trans, you know, take the transitions mindfully, you know, focus on my breath. <laughs> but there was a different level of connection to my thoughts and awareness of my thoughts when I practiced um, sitting meditation as opposed to a moving meditation of yoga. And obviously yoga prepares us for sitting meditation. So that would be the second thing that I would recommend uh, creative pages meditation, and then bringing a sense of ritual to just simple parts of our lives, the making of your bed in the morning, the brushing of your teeth, taking a, a marker out and writing on the mirror in front of you, three things that you're grateful for uh, every day, you know, really taking a moment to make life beautiful uh, through small actions um, of service. And sometimes they only serve yourselves. You're, you're not doing it for anyone else, but for yourself. But if you do that consistently with all of your little habits and actions repeated, you start to build a beautiful life. And mm -hmm. you know, this is where the 1%, the compound, um, the compound interest really starts to take effect is when we just consistently are practicing gratitude, um, giving thanks before a meal, you know, yeah. 
making our bed to make our room just a little bit more beautiful. So when we walk in, we have a little bit less clutter in our space and in our mind. Those are the keys, you know, ritual. I'm looking at life as a ceremony overall, really not separating the quote unquote ceremony space from day-to-day life, but really trying to make life beautiful through Mm -hmm. all of our uh, actions, you know, principle from Zen Buddhism, the, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but those yeah. are, those are the start. That's where I would start. What the last bit you just described is kind of touches on what I tend to remember the most when I go into a ceremonial space. Like if I go on a breath work or a psychedelic journey, I often end up hysterically sobbing and telling myself, okay, okay. I remember, I remember. And it's that feeling of treating life as a ceremony and you know like you said appreciating the the food that's in front of you or just walking slowly you know instead of like rushing and just having this deep gratitude and appreciation for experiencing what life is like here everything else is just so much noise and like chaos and like blah like (laughs) it's like yuckiness we like pile on ourselves and we forget you know, I, I've, touched, I've, I've touched I've I've touched that that part of me, and then I've managed to you know stick days together, where I am in that more I'm in ceremony with life kind of mindset. But then I forget, and then I have to remind myself, and I have to go back to the tools and remember again, and then I forget again, I forget again. And I guess the ultimate goal is to for that window of forgetfulness to get shorter and shorter, so I can keep coming back to this place of peace and ceremony with life. Yeah. It's always an opportunity to begin again when we find ourselves in a space of having forgotten. And that's the beauty is without attaching judgment or criticism, just Mm -hmm. begin again, you know, in that moment. And there's a real beauty in that when we can accept that and accept that we're, we're human, you know, the, these thoughts, those, are are going to pop in and we're going to forget. And part of the human experience is not to feel isolated and alone. And so another uh, really important factor for sustainable transformation that I would add would be the importance of community and Mm -hmm. being around like-minded individuals, um, whether it be virtually, if that's all you can handle, or certainly in person, really forming camaraderie and being around those that share your values, so important. Other individuals on the conscious path are of critical importance to, well, your sanity, um, your self-discovery and your happiness. And so if we can, you know, make space for community, we're so far ahead of this game. Yeah. For me, it helps me like validate the things that I'm going through or the things that I'm uncovering just either by sharing it with someone and having them listen and feel like it's resonating with them or the other way around where they share their stories and their discoveries and me relating to it in some way. It just, everything becomes so much more valid in this world. I agree with you a hundred percent. And one of the biggest impacts of men's work is just being seen, being witnessed as an imperfect being 
doing the best that you can in this world. And you realize, well, everyone else is just like me, you know, also have many of the same insecurities and fears. And it, it's just powerful, you know, to be witnessed and to do the witnessing, you know, to hold space for other men that, that are being vulnerable. And so that was another big, um, uh, a big step for me and, you know, building community and, and being around other conscious individuals men's work. I was so frustrated by having these amazing breakthroughs in ceremony or in my, on my therapist couch, but then not being able to translate it into the real world. And so within those communities, what we were doing are practices, embodiment practices, where we would practice putting ourselves into the fire. Maybe it's through, you know, some Kapal Bhati breathing with an ego eradicator, you know, where we have our arms raised above our heads mm. at a 60 degree angle for 10 minutes while we're practicing breath of fire. And I can tell you that gets really uncomfortable. And, <laughs> you know, you get about eight or nine minutes in and you just want to drop your arms and it's like, fuck, it's so hard, but you got someone sitting right across from you. That's so holding that space for you in battle with you. And you think that's hard. Like wait until you get into a really difficult conversation with your wife you know, and then the feelings start to come up inside you that are somewhat similar to what you're feeling physically in that moment of discomfort as you're uh, in that embodiment practice. And all of a sudden you realize like, wait, I can hold this pose. Yeah. You know, I don't need to give in. I don't need to collapse. Like I am, uh, I am strong and capable. And those types of practices are so important and it sounds silly really it sounds like well why would i need to do that i'm just going to decide but you know it's not a light switch life is not a light switch you know we have to practice um, as my coaches used to say you can't just turn it on and off in games you got to practice like you want to play and so those embodiment practices are so important because then when life really comes at you and it's not practice anymore it's real you have the ability to stand firm. Yeah. I've witnessed you do that with 10 pound weights in each of your <laughs> hands. <laughs> that is today one of the most impressive things I've seen anyone do. So. Uh, thanks, brother. Yeah, that was a really important moment. And I just, um, yeah, it felt really good to, to, to stand in the fire. Yeah, it was impressive on its own, but the moment in which it took place and the what awaited you on the other side of seeing that all the way through was just you know it amplified the experience for all of us i think do you know how long you held it for i have no idea i'd love to know but uh <laughs> you know what all i know is i i held it long enough <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite memories from fit for service last year for sure um, yeah, mine too. There's a, a question I love to end on with everyone who comes on the podcast. And uh, it's, uh, what is spirituality for you? Good question. Spirituality is moving the process. It's the process of moving closer to God um, through a felt sense. Um, just really is like stripping away all that which is not life energy. You know, we can call it God, we can call it great mother, the source, great spirit, whatever we want to call yeah. it, the relationship with that energy, mm. which is running through us, around us, you know, has ultimately that logos has gotten us here. 
um, connecting with that, developing a relationship with that energy. And uh, yeah, moving closer to that is spirituality for me. Beautiful. Love that. Yeah. How, uh, how can people find you and connect with you online? Yeah, I'm at John Robert Downs on Instagram. It's johnrobertdowns.com is my website. And all my contact information is there. That's pro- mostly where I'm at online is uh, Instagram and uh, my website. So those would be the best ways. Awesome. Do you guys have any events coming up in the near future? We do. We will be on the East Coast in, uh, at the end of the month. So uh, we're pretty excited. My partner, Nicole, and I facilitate sound meditations. Uh, so we'll be in New Jersey and Connecticut and New York uh, around uh, the end of the month and then Miami on uh, the weekend of the 12th. So really excited for those journeys. Awesome. And I hope your travels take you to Costa Rica in the coming future. Yeah. What's your space look like? Are we ready to have a sound meditation at uh, <laughs> Casa de Kudish? N- not quite yet, but it's coming. Okay. All yeah. right. Beautiful. <laughs> I'll just invite myself down just uh, in case you didn't notice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on to share your recent experiences and your expertise in all things psychedelic. As always, I just enjoy chatting with you so much. I really see you kind of like a, a big brother figure. You're paving the path for, for myself and for so many others, I'm sure. So I really, I really appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Talk to you soon, brother. Be well.